again. This is Buck Benny speaking. I'm with my friend Bob, and uh, we are presenting to you another In Search Of. And this is, oh, what's the title of this thing? In Search Of Distant like, Alien Calls. It's, or, it's, uh, calling Aliens. Yeah, it's, it's, calling it's basically about extraterrestrial craft. Calling signals of interplanetary craft. I, I'll have to play that. Carter the Carpenter's song that that ties in with this so well. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's about signals from space and to space and all that kind of thing. Um, Bob, what did what did you think of the this episode and uh, what stood out to you and have and yeah, the updates we have? I figured I, I thought when I when I saw this one and listened to I thought oh I bet there's some updates on this one. So go ahead, Bob. That. Uh, I looked it up, so it's a call, a search in search of a call from space. Yeah, we were close. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, that's the idea. The idea is like hearing from aliens. What, this is another one that blew me away that I associate this with the 80s and 90s. Yes. And now we're seeing that, you know, SETI's going back way earlier and people are already looking way earlier than that, like back in the 60s and 70s, which I didn't realize. I know it, it is interesting how so many of the subjects they cover. You're going, was that a subject in the se in '77? And it was, so, yeah, yeah, and and they were heavily like heavily into it then too. Mm -hmm. I mean, they already they had the Arecibo. They already showed the Arecibo like receiver that one, and it's in uh, Puerto Rico, like a huge dish, which yes. I think is in a James Bond movie too. Yes, I think so. <laughs> I think he goes running out there on the top of the tenor receiver or something. But yeah, um, they're still, said he's still running. They did get that one signal, what they call the wow signal. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Because the guy wrote in the margin, wow, was, it, and it looked like it was actually an intentionally broadcast, but it was just a little blurb and, and they've never repeated. So now they're thinking maybe it was just random, actually random, but looked not random. Right. So they still haven't really captured anything that they doesn't look like random sort of, you know, our radio noise. Right. But they're still looking. And then there's our, you know, uh, uh, Stephen Hawking said before he died that he, they should shut it down. Oh, okay. Why he, doesn't, he, he doesn't think we are. He doesn't, what's that? Why did he say they should shut it down because it was just a waste of time or something or? No, he doesn't think we should make contact with aliens because they'll come and eat us. Oh, okay. Basically, you don't want an advanced race that's got technology that's more, that's better than yours, finding out that you're there. Well, if you're going to go science fiction-y sort of route, um, I, I can kind of understand that. I mean, we definitely, we, we barely have the technology to deal with each other on this planet. And then to be sending out a signal that theoretically would be found by somebody. If, certainly, if they can somehow get here, they're way more advanced than us because we can't get anywhere. You know, we, we have trouble with reaching out to Mars just recently with probes and things. But um, yeah, I, I guess I could kind of see that argument in a way. I mean, you'd hope anybody that's advanced wouldn't just be cartoony and come and want to kill you. They would be a more advanced society that would, you know, well, essentially like if we are having, okay, it looks like we might 
possibly probably be having UFO type things that, that have been visiting us or seeing us. Well, obviously they've just been studying us or something because it's not like we have massive attacks that are happening from space and things. So um, you would hope it'd be a Star Trek sort of thing, right? Where they, where they go, Oh, well, this is an interesting society to, to look into. And, and my goodness, they're way more violent than we are. That's what you'd hope and not be, Oh, where it's a bunch of alien crab creatures that are going to come down here and, and, and devour us or something. That's that was kind of Hawkins been on it, but like you said, there, you know, UFOs are already flying around, so yeah, and, and getting more credibility by the moment. Correct. So, yeah, I maybe saying, they'll have the prime. This is a timely piece of of us pre representing these old in search of, just because we're hearing more about UFOs than we have in a long time and where people are getting more and more videos of them and things and and the government's just kind of yeah I don't, we don't know what that is <laughs> yeah the, the government's showing films from their own pilots now that something that wouldn't happen and the fact that now we see that blue book got shut down in the 70s but was picked up really by the cia and went underground yeah so blue book was the u.s air force's study of ufos Right. And they shut it down. Yeah, like I think it was late 60s they shut it down. And but it got picked up. The CIA was still doing it for decades. Yeah. 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 It was an interesting episode. But that was Hawking's thing is don't let them come eat you, find you and eat you. Yeah. Um they're gonna come down and like use their advanced technology to turn you into slaves or whatever. So yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's all interesting stuff, and uh, like you say, uh, this episode especially makes you go, "Oh, I didn't know that this was happening way back then," and that's kind of cool that that it has that. Now, as far as it's one of those things where you'd sort of think you'd, at, at the time in '77, you'd go, "Okay, between now and the year 2020, we'll." find someone someone will respond to our signal or we'll pick out that there's some sort of alien signal going on i mean it seems like they're so close to figuring it out but uh since then they're you know like you said there's been certain things but nothing that's been proven to be an alien signal or anything like that so i guess this episode you would say you're still in kind of the same boat roughly um you would agree with that bob yeah, they're still looking. They don't have definitive proof. But then, you know, you gotta have a radio signal point at this tiny little spot in space right at us. Right. Um, you know, they kind of radiate out with, I think the power levels could be pretty damn low after that distance. So, I mean, the chances, even if you're listening, you may not pick it up. Yeah, agreed. Just, and, and then the other side, you always got two sides of this coin. You've got one of one, would you find and get the get a signal, right? I guess there's three sides. There's one, do you get some sort of signal that you recognize? Two, can you realize that it is a signal from another alien race or whatever versus just randomness? And then three, does the government allow us to understand to to do that or do they do they deny it entirely and and they know but it's they don't let us as citizens know um and unfortunately it seems like right now people are having less and less 
confidence in what the government shares with them and that, that the government is um, open and whatever. Uh, so, yeah, so you got those three things sort of playing against it. And uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know enough. I'm not, uh, I don't have a high enough security clearance to get anything. So <laughs> it's, it's, but I will say it's an entertaining episode and worth listening to and worth watching. Yep. Okay. And a lot of radio, even those amateur guys were finding stuff. You know, there's a bunch of amateur guys with their dishes finding. One guy was an engineer, had this big dish in his backyard, which must drove his family actually crazy, like his wife. <laughs> Jared building a radio dish in the backyard. <laughs> okay, honey. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I guess he's not up all night like surfing the net. He's down there listening to his radio signals, but I guess that's better. But still, anyway, yeah, yeah, it, it was interesting. Well, that's that's what always uh, gets me too is the um, diligence and drive that so many of these folks have in various of these shows, who are so into whatever they're doing that they spend decades and working on it and doing something that's not getting any real recognition where they're getting ridiculed left and right. Um, and like you said, probably causing problems with their families and everything. Um, Cause you realize once you do something like this, whether it's my podcast, whether it's uh, the show you put on that, you know, sometimes I'm sure that your wife gets a little annoyed by you working on it and not having time to do something else that she wants you to do. And so does, and, and my, so it puts a stress on your family and things for sure. And, but you're, you're trying to do this thing because you think it's important or uh, something you want to do. It's, it's certainly enjoyable. Um, yeah, so I kind of empathize with these guys, but they take it even a whole nother level than I take it at all. So, yeah. Anyway, I guess uh, we'll probably leave it there. Does that sound like a good spot to let them just enjoy the episode? Yep. Okay. So enjoy this one. Uh, we'll be back with some more. I have a feeling that coming up episodes are the more wild ones now like werewolves and various things like that um and, and so, I, I do like the way this series kind of goes from from something that's science more science-based to something that's more fantasy and and plays around with with that and uh it makes every episode be kind of interesting you just don't know which way it's going to go and i enjoy both i enjoy both the kind of fantasy ones and the more scientific i i tend to lean a little more to this sort of episode the actual scientific episodes which i think bob does as well but i'm not sure that's not about right bob i like them both he likes i like them both i know jim i know jim would for these yeah there you go and maybe yeah. Jim will be back sometime. I'm not sure. We might have scared him away. We'll see. And then, <laughs> and, and Matt, who knows when he'll be back at some point. But uh, for now, you enjoy Bob and I. We're back to the, we are the the originals. We are, uh, yeah, we are the originals. <laughs> we started the thing. Uh, what? Almost a year ago. We started last summer, right? Wasn't that it? I think. When we started. Yeah, it seems like it was together. Yeah. like. Or was it two July, years? June, July? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was during COVID. So, yeah, it was it was June or July, yeah. So I'm just so glad we did. And out of all this, if nothing else came from any of this, you know, I, I enjoy that we that Bob's on my podcast and everything. But the fact that Bob decided to start creating his own YouTube series but not forgotten, um, I think 
is the most worthwhile thing we have out of this thing because he actually might actually help some people and stuff, which is just awesome. So tune into that if you haven't checked out his but not forgotten out there. Uh, how many episodes you got now? So uh, we, only have, we only have five plus two, uh, me and Ari. Um, yeah. Open to start getting them out faster, but I got another like kind of class thing going on at the same time too. So that was good. Yeah. What, what uh, describe to us. I mean, we know I've played some of the, but not forgotten's it's where we focus on like uh, one person that's been lost and, and we try and, uh, present their story of how they got lost and that we're looking for them, that they're being looked for and everything. And I narrate them, which is lovely. I like doing that. Um, but then he, Bob has these new two episodes that he put on there with, with Bob and Ari talking. And can you kind of explain what those episodes are like? And so we'd, we'd understand if we want to tune into those. Yeah. They're more like the classic, like YouTube channel where some people talk. So basically me and Ari pick a case so we did more Murray. So kind of a discussion like you and I are having right now. Yeah. So me and Ari just discussed the case. And Ari, for a 20-year-old that's about to turn 21, crap, she's got some really amazing insights. Sometimes I'm like, wow. Um, so we just talk about the case, theories, what we think about, the, you know, what happened to the person, you know, what their mental state might have been. Yeah. We just go through. We're going to do another one here on... Uh, an African-American girl named Asha Degree. Really strange case. Um, that'll probably be out in another week or so. So yeah, it's just a, it's a discussion between the two of us. Right. Well, and I think I, I think you might give her a little more credit than, than maybe she deserves because you, what you're doing is you're comparing. It's uh, She's a 20-year-old who knows quite a bit and you're like, wow, that is pretty darn impressive. And then you get together with me and you're like, dang he's an old man and he knows very little so <laughs> the comparison between me and Ari she holds up really well compared to me so it's all good anyway. I just think she actually has more insights than I do I seem to know all the details of the case yeah a lot of times better than she does but when she comes up with insights about the person's like mental state I'm like wow She's probably yeah. really good at connecting the dots together is what she's good at and, and things, which is great. So yeah. um, I have not listened to either of those. I need to do that. I think I listened to maybe part of one. And so I, I want to listen to that too. How long, like how long are the discussions usually that you have with her? They're, they're long and they're like an hour. Okay. Um, the first one I thought was really crappy, but it's got way more views. Okay. I mean, it, I made it like I didn't have us on screen and screen. But maybe the discussion was better. I don't know. The second one I thought was going to do way better, but it's because it was way it was produced better, but not really. It's not really doing well. So uh, tune into either one or both and compare them, and uh, and then uh, leave comments for Bob about which one you enjoy the most. And or uh, theories, leave us leave us theories and tell us what happened. Well, they like theories. I like that too. Okay, uh, feel free to leave us theories too. Uh, I don't know what you'd leave a theory on, but go ahead. String theory or something would be interesting for us to read about. All right, thank <laughs> you so much, everybody, for tuning in and enjoy. Uh, Rod Serling, I'm going to make a prediction. I can't remember uh, 100% with this one. I'm going to make a prediction that he's going to show up in a suit jacket with a uh, with 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 a turtleneck. Is my prediction. So, yeah, I, I, I think a good chance of being correct. I think it's a dark. <laughs> turtleneck with a blue jacket this time. 
Ooh, dark delay. We usually they're kind of white or tannish or something. But I think he just changes clothes and films another one. I think he does. I think he has a bunch of turtlenecks and just slips them on. Okay, let's go. Give me another jacket. There we go. Yeah. Well, he says in in the interviews with him that he does like five of them, like back to back. At least the location shots are all done. Like in one day, he'll do five different episodes worth of them, and then they'll fill in the narration as they go. So I, I think it was really innovative the way they did it, so that they can maximize their time with Nimoy and uh, at least his his filmed time and it just made it appear like they had a lot more time with him like every week he had time to spend time and he didn't it was you know every fifth week he would do five of them like I say and then he throughout the five weeks he would do uh, some of the narration you know whenever he had time I think he probably recorded at home or something and go from there but interesting to hear about this show and how it was made so uh, and if I can, if I find more of that uh, stuff about him talking about the show, I'll try and put that in here since I'm just mentioning it. So we shall see. All right. Thanks, everybody. And see you next week for more In Search Up with uh, our friend uh, Leonard Nimoy and my friend Bob Seifert and uh, maybe some other folks, too. I don't know. We'll see. Ciao. Our voices have ascended into space, announcing our presence to the universe. Other men on other worlds may be listening. We await an answer from afar, placed by an intelligence we do not know, we will not recognize, we may not even understand. Radio waves that might bear the conversations of distant beings are monitored, day and night, by astronomers throughout the world. Our understanding of life in outer space may begin with reaching out to another form of intelligence here on Earth. If we can communicate with one strange intelligence, we can hope to communicate with others. and galaxies beckon us to ask, are we alone? We listen for the answer. This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine. We have always dreamed of talking with celestial beings. Discoveries in deep space have revealed that the same chemistry that created earthly life operates elsewhere. Perhaps we are not accidents of creation. Perhaps we are not alone. Giant ultra-sensitive instruments tune in on the frequencies of other worlds as we begin a cosmic journey. search for intelligent life beyond the planet Earth has begun, 
and the job is as immense as the universe itself. Our galaxy alone contains an estimated 250 billion stars, and there are at least 100 billion other galaxies. How many of these stars have Earth-like planets harboring life? Until recently, we searched with our eyes, aided by telescopes. Then, with the advent of radio, a whole new noisy universe emerged, and man began to listen to the stars. In 1971, at NASA's Ames Research Center, 24 scientists and engineers began the search for other life. Led by Dr. Bernard Oliver and Dr. John Billingham, the group concluded that radio is the most effective way of detecting other voices in space. The search for extraterrestrial intelligence, nicknamed SETI, became a reality. Dr. Oliver explains. The concept of doing this really has its origin in the belief that we will have to go to other stars rather than just other planets of our own system before we find intelligent life. And the belief that that is an extremely difficult thing to do physically. If we are not going to cross the gulf of interstellar space, how then are we going to ever detect other intelligent life? The answer seems to be by looking for evidence of it in the form of signals that it may either radiate on purpose to arouse our attention or simply in the course of its own activities. It's quite possible that signals have been falling on the Earth for uh, millions or billions of years. In 1931, extraterrestrial radio signals were accidentally discovered by Bell telephone engineer Carl Jansky. Jansky detected a hiss that seemed to be coming from the very center of our galaxy. For the first time, dense star clouds, invisible to optical telescopes, revealed their presence through radio emissions. Grote Reber, an enthusiastic radio amateur, confirmed Jansky's observations. Using a homemade backyard antenna, Reber found that radio emissions of natural origin occur throughout our galaxy. Then in 1961, the search for intentional signals began. At Greenbank, West Virginia, a radio telescope was used for the first time to listen for intelligent signals from space. Project Ozma, a whimsical reference to the land lying over the rainbow, was followed ten years later by the most far-reaching life search program ever devised. The Cyclops plan was to start with a modest size antenna element, say something like 300 feet in diameter, and simply add additional ones as time went on to increase the total collecting area. This sort of a system is known as an antenna array, and it works by having all of the antennas feed their signals together into a common receiver, a common detector, uh, so that they add in phase and act as if they had been picked up by a single antenna. So we believe we can take as many as a thousand antennas and connect them together in this fashion and get a huge collecting area. A listening post beyond Earth is an alternative explored by SETI astronomer, Dr. Charles Seeger. A basic problem in a search for extraterrestrial signals has to do with the interference to receiving systems produced by all our transmissions in the same radio frequency spectrum. Space uh, may offer some advantages and may not be all that more expensive for a large receiving system than on Earth. Space has the advantage of uh, 
a more benign environment. Uh, you don't have winds and storms and rain and repainting to do all the time. It's very quiet. Also, you can put up a very light system in space. It floats there. The backside of the moon is attractive since there you are beautifully shielded from all Earth activity. What we envision is to reproduce in the craters of the moon a series of Arecibo-type antennas. And it's estimated by engineers that one could build a thousand to three thousand foot, or even larger perhaps, Arecibo-type structures relatively economically, scattering them among a bunch of adjacent craters uh, on the back of the moon. An alternative to the uh, moon is to have an antenna floating in space in orbit around the Earth. The early antennas would be so arranged that they could be constructed in space, carried out in pieces on a shuttle, along with the workers necessary to construct it. It would then be set into orbit and the shuttle would return while we tried out the device. While we wait for a call from space, we have not ruled out breaking the silence of the universe by sending our own signals to cosmic neighbors. Nestled in the tropical mountain jungle of Puerto Rico is the largest radio telescope on Earth. A thousand feet across and 300 feet deep, the Arecibo Telescope can listen to signals from the farthest reaches of the universe. It can also converse with other beings in the cosmos. On November 16, 1974, man prepared to beam his first and only intentional signal to intelligence beyond the Earth. message, traveling at the speed of light, will take 24,000 years to reach star cluster M13 in the constellation Hercules. In code, the message describes our solar system, the Earth, and the life upon it. The chemical basis of life on Earth is represented by the famous double helix of DNA. The final depiction of a human being is like a cry in the night of space. Who or what will answer our call? On March 2nd, 1972, Pioneer 10 began its 21-month journey to Jupiter. Attached to the spacecraft is a plaque kind of planetary Rosetta Stone, designed by astronomer Dr. Carl Sagan. But in the remote contingency that there are interstellar spacefaring societies, which might someday pick up this derelict no longer radioing, we thought we would put a message on it to indicate a little bit of where we are, when we are, and who we are. 
we think that the, the information on where we are and when we are indicated in this part of the message by the configuration of certain cosmic objects called pulsars will be completely obvious to uh, any society capable of traveling between the stars. These two objects will be more mysterious because it is unlikely that there will be human beings anywhere else, even though there may be other creatures elsewhere. And the plaque has served a very useful purpose in making us think about what sort of impression we might wish to give to the cosmos. Pioneer 10 flew past Jupiter in December 1973. In 1984, it will leave the solar system forever. Who will pick up our message floating in interstellar space? Radio waves traveling much faster than Pioneer will provide our first clue. Any signal that we pick up will certainly not have originated from a civilization much less advanced technically than we, because it is only very recently that we have been able to radiate and detect such signals. If we look at the enormous time spans involved, then it seems very likely that what we will find is a civilization considerably more advanced than ourselves, and which might have reasons for attempting to contact us that we do not even comprehend at the present time. At Ames Research Center, psychologist Dr. Mary Connors is working to determine what an extraterrestrial civilization might be like. Basically, uh on the non-technological issues, which is what I'm primarily concerned with. We're concerned with, with two basic questions. One is what, is, what can we know about the nature of the intelligence that we're likely to contact? Well, what do we know about intelligence? We could ask, what is intelligence? What possible forms can it take? What can we learn from animal intelligence? The dolphin although it shares our planet, exists in a world of its own. It speaks a language we do not comprehend. Its brain size is comparable to man's, yet the dolphin is still an enigma, as alien to us as a creature from outer space. At San Diego's SeaWorld, trainers and scientists work behind the scenes in an intensive effort to unravel the mysteries of dolphin sonar and communication. I'll tell you what, we'll give you another munchie for that. The dolphin has always seemed akin to man, and some have wondered if this creature, even now, is attempting to communicate with us. But he doesn't know yet what the difference means. The greatest problem remains the limit of our own experience. Despite our theories and our hopes, man has yet to exchange one word with the dolphin. SeaWorld's curator of mammals, Dr. Lanny Cornell, and researcher Sherry Gish are interested in cracking the communication barrier. One of the projects that we have in an overall study of communications amongst dolphins is one between two animals in two pools, uh, separated by a soundproof gate, which allows us to determine specifically when the animals will be able to communicate with one another. Cornell and his assistant will monitor every sound emitted by the two dolphins. The exchange, each signal and response, will be carefully studied and patterns of sound production analyzed. Sound waves are converted into a form that can be measured electronically. 
an oscilloscope reveals the changes in frequencies, some inaudible to the human ear. At one sixteenth normal speed, the intricacies of dolphin signals become apparent. The dolphin is one form of non-human intelligence. The form that extraterrestrial life may take is subject to scientific speculation. It does appear that at least at our present stage of evolution, there may be some advantages to being structured, uh, at least with some of the characteristics that we have. There are clear advantages, for example, to having two eyes uh, with which you can uh, see in color and with which you can achieve binocular vision. It's clear that there are advantages to having an upright posture. It's clear that there are advantages to having a, a brain located at one end of the body. And you can go on like this. If it is inevitable that another civilization will have had at one point some of the characteristics we have now, will contact with these alien beings from some unknown planet bring doomsday to our tiny world? Or do the benefits to our future outweigh the dangers? The greatest miracle that we have before us is the fact that within a few billion years, the universe, through the marvelous laws of chemistry and physics, has converted part of itself into consciousness, and that part can now contemplate the universe that begat it. A French scientist put it this way, astronomy is useful because it shows us how small is man's body, how great is mind. Dr. John Krauss is an electrical engineer and astronomer at Ohio State University. He is one of a few who are working intently to solve the riddle of the universe. To answer the question, are we alone? He is philosophical about his mission. I think one of the exciting things about all this work is that uh, those of us who are involved are, are like pioneers. We are exploring the, the universe. It's a pioneering venture to uh, find out what is out there and perhaps who is out there. Searching for extraterrestrial intelligence is um, like looking for um, a needle in a haystack. Assuming that we're not unique and that there are intelligent beings elsewhere, we have to try and second guess them. But uh, you, you need some kind of um, roadmap. Dr. Krauss's roadmap is a giant radio telescope that he helped design and build. He affectionately calls it Big Ear. Larger than three football fields in area, Big Ear has detected signals from the most distant known objects in the universe. Could Big Ear now find intelligent signals in the vastness of space? Hi, Ed. Bob. Hi, Dr. Krause. Anything oh. interesting? Well, we have some unusual... We began our search on Friday, the 7th of December, 1973. Bob Dixon and Ed Tega worked for weeks setting up and testing an eight-channel filter and getting it ready for the life search. Well, why not run it? Let's give it a go. All right. 
There was no fuss or fanfare. Switches were set, recorders started, and the data began to flow. Now our big ear was listening for other men on other planets, circling other stars, who might have built beacon stations to announce their presence. If Bob Dixon said, we got something that looks interesting, John, I, I'm sure it wouldn't be that he had recorded a voice saying, uh, this is planet MX3 calling Earth. It wouldn't be anything as direct and unequivocal as that. It would just be a little bump on a squiggly line record that uh, went on for hundreds of feet that uh, occurred in a way that set it off from others. We may have to wait a long time. The probability of life developing elsewhere is hard to determine definitely, but I don't think it is zero. And if it is not zero, then I think we have a chance. Someday this uh, call from space may come. It's hard to say when it will. The signal that we're looking for might uh, be found uh, within a day, but it might take, uh, might be weeks, years, but it will have profound significance to man. If we are not alone, what will we say to our neighbors? For centuries, man thought that the Earth was the center of the universe. The sun, moon, and stars were to light our days and nights. Then Galileo turned his telescope to the sky, and we learned that the moon and planets were worlds beyond dispute. That the stars weren't just ornaments in the sky, but represented a cosmos far beyond man's earthly imagination. We dreamt of life beyond the planet Earth, and set out to explore the universe. We began, humbly, with the moon. I was strolling on the moon one day We found that there is no man in the moon, but there are nine other planets in our solar system. So we set our sights on Mars and sent our probe. Now we look beyond to the vastness of the universe and search the stars for voices of other beings. If we were in fact to decipher messages from the other civilizations over and above simply receiving a signal and knowing that they are there, then it is conceivable we might learn about the pathways that they took when they were at our present stage of development. I think in this way uh, one can easily visualize a network of intercommunicating societies growing up in our galaxy. Such a network could achieve results in science and in philosophy and in other fields uh, that would be more painful if they were isolated. Past human history may be only the prelude to our future as members of a galactic society. Our future will begin with a call from space. Lost civilizations, extraterrestrials, myths and monsters, missing persons, magic and witchcraft, unexplained phenomena. In search of cameras are traveling the world seeking out these great mysteries. 
This program was the result of the work of scientists, researchers, and a group of highly skilled technicians.